0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, October 17th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. The global economy is not some geopolitical zero sum game. Far from it. The exchange, trade, sharing of ideas and innovations on a continuous basis is what has lifted hundreds of millions of people out of abject poverty. Yet the fight for free markets must persist. And Cato's John Norberg has a new contribution The Capitalist Manifesto why the global free market will save the world. We spoke last month.
1: Yeah, the problem is that we have to keep on nagging and keep on reminding people of the principles of open societies and free economies, because the same kind of myths keep on reappearing. So when I wrote in defense of of global capitalism 20 years ago, there are other concerns nowadays. Uh, People might have bought some of the things that we've said back then that uh, globalization won't result in exploitation of poor countries. On the contrary, we've seen the rise of uh, what's popularly called the global south in the countries that opened up and integrated into the global economy and reduced poverty dramatically. But then, once people have learned that, since they still think that the economy is a zero-sum game, they think that we are the ones who lose out and that we uh, suddenly in the rich countries, we lose jobs, we end up with deindustrialization and um, deepening inequalities. And uh, I'm trying to address those new concerns and the rise of China and uh, how to tackle global warming. And what's, what's topping the agenda right now, basically?
0: There has been, I think, uh, an improvement in the thought of a lot of development economists over the last 20 years where it was aid, aid, aid. And and now at least there is a recognition that we need to care about what local people are able to do with the resources they have, where they are at the time, and at least facilitate the process of letting these people engage with the broader world and try to discover what kinds of ad- comparative advantages they might have and what kinds of contributions they can make to the world for a profit. And that is, of course, you know, as you would say, a tremendously great development program uh, if you just put the word program at the end of it.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that people realized that there was no real correlation between the money sent. To governments in poor countries and their level of development. If anything, we could see a new version of the resource curse. We're, we have enriched various power centers and governments, and that has resulted in attempts to capture the government and, and resulted in everything but productive work. But once the countries have been able to be integrated into the, the global economy, start businesses, get access to foreign investments, trade with the rest of the world, we've seen the best development, if not program, (laughs) that the world has ever seen. We've reduced extreme poverty by 135,000 people every day over the past
0: 20 years, and that's free markets in action. Now, that is, of course, uh, a stunning achievement, but I mean, it happens every day, Joan. A company threatening to move its operations from the US to Mexico or to Canada or to uh, China or so, uh, something else that doesn't happen every day. And these would be as far as many people are concerned, particularly in the political classes in the United States who have constituents who m- might be riled at the, at the prospect of losing some sort of industrial production. Those people are want to sell the down case of uh, globalization. That is the short term costs that they are going to bear personal witness to. Yeah, this is why
1: we have to keep on nagging because it's often the case that we find concentrated uh, pain when we engage in creative destruction, but dispersed benefits. So the whole society benefits, America benefits once we expose ourselves to international competition and specialization, because we can continue to climb the value ladder. American companies that have been exposed to Chinese competition, they've expanded their workforce. 2% 2% more than those who are not exposed to it, because they specialize in the sectors where they can add more value, where they can add something more, more capital investment in, in those areas. And that's how we keep on being richer. We stop doing the old things and do things better, smarter, and, and cheaper tomorrow. That's how we get richer, but that's not necessarily seen. It's not visible. It's not dramatic. It's just the case that we can find it out in our wallets long term. The fact that we get uh, increased purchasing power and that all the kinds of amenities that we considered luxuries 20, 30, 40 years ago are now widely dispersed. The, fact, the data point that keeps on blowing my mind every time I look at it is the fact that people below the poverty line in the United States now has a greater chance of owning things like dishwashers, washing machines, dryers, television sets, and of course, computers and cell phones than the average American did in 1970. And that's how you make a society richer.
0: I think most people intuitively grasp the idea that you can, there is mutually beneficial exchange uh, with your friends, with people you know down the street, with the store in town. But once you've scaled up Those kinds of exchanges, something is lost, and something about our attitudes about those kinds of exchanges changes. And it becomes something that is a little more suspicious. And it's the kind of thing that politicians, of course, like to take advantage of and say, no, this is bad. It is scary. We cannot allow it. To quote one politician, we're getting ripped off. So, what changes? What changes between that, our most narrow circle of concern that is then expanded out and where people become very very suspicious of this kind of thing in general?
1: Nothing changes if you look at it from an economic perspective. The only thing that happens is that you suddenly do business with and collaborate with people whom you do not know and whom you might never meet and who might possibly not even like you you if you met them. And, and yet we've constructed a set of institutions and free markets whereby we work for one another's benefit. Despite of this, this is one of the greatest achievements that mankind has ever achieved. And I think it's important to realize that just because it's far away and it might seem strange, perhaps even threatening, this is the way we are growing strong. I'm trying to tell all the new nationalists, this thing, they think that we are becoming stronger if we're doing everything all by ourselves. I'm saying it's, it's the opposite. If you really want your own place, your city, your country to be strong, then you have to enroll everyone in trying to make it strong. And you do that by collaborating and trading with others so that you get access to their talent, their brains, their ideas, and their goods and services. And then you can specialize in what you do best and exchange.
0: There are millions of global supply chains. We talk about the global supply chain, but it's really lots and lots and lots of individual supply chains that in a a more technological age, like the one we live in, uh, components get added, uh, design is done in one place, assembly is done somewhere else. And it is, to me, it's beautiful. To see all of these different groups and people and companies and expertise working in concert so that I can have a big screen TV, which is you know just you know the icing on the cake really. but there is a profound lack of understanding about just how fragile a lot of those things are, even if overall these processes are pretty robust that with uh, entrepreneurial capability people can switch gears pretty quickly and resupply different products. And, but there's a limit to the amount of imposition that governments can engage in on the various supply chains that, by all accounts, make everybody's lives a little better. Yeah, it seems almost magic when you realize that there
1: are thousands or tens of thousands of, of components produced from all over the world in every single electronic gadget you've got. And this is the beauty of the marketplace. Everybody can find a role in it by specializing in what they can do best at the cheapest price so that we can afford all these goods. And it is difficult. It's constantly changing. And that's why it's been so remarkably impressive to see how entrepreneurs and businesses rebuild supply chains in real time during the pandemic, when the world was suddenly shut down and they lost access to Certain intermediary goods and to a large part of their workforce. And then, again, they had to rebuild it after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. They're constantly doing this all this hard work just to get the stuff we want uh, at, at our home in, in almost no time. It's as Henry David Thoreau, the transcendentalist, writer and poet, pointed out 150 years ago, "It's as if trade and commerce are made of rubber, because they bounce over all the obstacles that legislators put in their way all the time. But as you say, there is a limit. This means that you can't just intervene with sudden tariffs and uh, sudden regulations that stop businesses from accessing these things, because it's not a way of hurting those countries. Yes, it is too, but it's a way of hurting ourselves. The moment that our businesses do not get access to the best parts and the goods they need to produce goods, then we lose out
0: in the competition. I bring up technology specifically because there are a lot of claims regarding free trade and free exchange that implicate national security. I don't have a lot to say about those specific implications, except to say they ought to be taken seriously. They are important considerations. And a lot of this energy... And it's not that surprising for a couple of reasons. A lot of this, this sort of skeptical energy is aimed at China with respect to certain kinds of uh, processors and other technological innovations that people say, well, without them, we would not have access to these important components that would contribute to our security in the U.S. And that's the most generous take I can put on it. And there are less generous takes.
1: But I think this is the, uh, the most legitimate argument I can find for any kind of, of uh, at least trade investigation looking at our supply chains. Is there a national security concern here? And I definitely think so. It's worth looking into investments in physical and digital infrastructure if it's done by a government that doesn't necessarily want, wish us well. Uh, so we, we should look at that. But we also have to consider that this is widely exaggerated by those who have a commercial interest to restrict that competition, the kind of businesses and trade unions who just wish the competition away. So when we're looking at supply chains and whether there are things that we really couldn't do without, if, say, China, well, it is China that we're talking about, if they suddenly restricted it, would what would happen to us? And it turns out that there are so many competitors on the world market. It seems like it would be fairly easy in most instances to shift producers, uh, to tweak manufacturing even back home to fix most of it. There are some things, mostly metals and minerals, where there is a a Chinese dominance. And what I think about then is before we start to ruin world trade (laughs) to, to try to create incentives to produce this back home, Let's just realize that we've got access to those resources. I mean, rare earth minerals are not very rare. It's just that we've lost interest and uh, we, for regulatory purposes, environmental regulation, safety concerns, we don't want to exploit those resources. I mean, Sweden recently found, in my own country, Sweden, northern uh, Sweden, we found what is probably the largest supply of, um, of rare earth minerals. We found lithium, now Nevada-Oregon border uh, area, which might be bigger than even Bolivia's total reserves. So we could start doing that. Of course, there are safety concerns. We have to think about groundwater and so on. But do you think we do that worse than the Chinese and and the Congolese? I'm not sure about that. So let's start where we're at before we, we start to undermine the trade system, because we also know that there are some special interests who would want that.
0: Okay. If you look at manufacturing jobs in the United States, you will see a slow, steady decline into essentially a flat line. But if you put that on the same set of axes as manufacturing output in the United States, it hit a blip in 2009, but otherwise it's been pretty smooth sailing upward for a very long period of time. But so many people in the United States in particular, and presumably in other countries, would look at that piece of data and say, what do I care about how productive this sector is? I'm looking at how few people are required to get this output. And again, this is a bit of zero-sum thinking, but I'm worried about the jobs, and politicians are incentivized to care about things like that. You and I look at data, but it's not necessarily a a piece of comfort to tell them, oh, but look at this chart. Look at the output.
1: Yeah, no, that's right. But never give up. (laughs) Perhaps the next chart will do the trick. (laughs) Uh, I think it's so incredibly important to point out what you just said, that we're not Deindustrializing, We are producing more manufactured goods than we've ever done before. It's just that we don't need as many people to do it. And that's because of a success story, the fact that we've been able to raise productivity in the sector with automation and better methods. And this is a paradox when you're listening to the nostalgics. And often now they come from the sort of the national conservative right. They say, we want good decent manufacturing jobs, both because it's, it's good jobs, but also because this is the way to make the economy strong, because we've seen a rise in productivity in those sectors that we haven't in others. Exactly. We've seen the rise of productivity there. And that's exactly why we don't need as many people in factories anymore. So, uh, so there is a paradox over there. And the only way to solve it is to realize that losing manufacturing jobs, but being able to produce more manufactured goods is a triumph. That's what you do if you succeed as a society. All the countries with big trade surpluses that are often mentioned as they, they are the role models here, Japan and um, Germany, they began to lose manufacturing jobs in the 1970s. South Korea has lost it. Singapore is, is losing it. Now, China is losing manufacturing jobs. Since 2013, about 5 million manufacturing jobs every year. So, if even the country that stole all our manufacturing jobs are losing it, who takes it from us, the only solution is to realize that this is productivity. This is what it looks like. And this is how we become richer as a society by continuing to do this, not by trying to block trade. We might get some factories back if we subsidize them heavily, if we are putting up tariff barriers to manufactured goods from other places. But we're not getting all the manufacturing jobs back because the only way to make those factories competitive and not just a terrible waste of the taxpayer's money is to make them automated and up to standards. And then we can't have
0: that many manufacturing jobs. I'm thinking of a, a couple of different things. One is Boris Yeltsin in a grocery store with his arms up looking at, you know, the incredible bounty that the United States has created. And I'm also thinking of a different Soviet leader who, you know, was, I believe, in a conversation with Richard Nixon, said something effective, we will bury you. At the time, what he was talking about was products, goods. This, our, our, this planned economy is going to deliver goods to you. This effort today of deindustrialization, this, it seems to me that it is more about overcoming the desire to have things. It's not about having all the things. It's about, honestly, just reducing the standard of living for not just Americans, but most of the world. Is that, is that an unfair characterization of that view? Or do they believe that, oh, this deindustrialization, that just means that we're going to be doing it here, we'll have all the same stuff, the prices will be fine, don't worry about it.
1: I think you'll see this is one thing I realize when I investigate the new critics of free markets, you'll see that they can come in all shapes and forms. There are those who actually believe that if we just pick winners, if we find some decent, good American businesses and subsidize them they will be top of the world. But then, which obviously neglects the whole history of um, industrial policy, uh, not even entrepreneurs, not even people who act on markets, who are risking their own money and face constant feedback from markets, know what's going to succeed or not. So how would politicians and bureaucrats or think tanks who are sitting far away from the action and are not risking their own money, how would they be able to make those decisions? So, so this is a dangerous road to go. But then there is the other um, more existential point of view that we have become over materialized. It's bad for our soul. It's bad for the planet. And we should really try to be doing other things with our, our lives. And sure, that's an option that's open to you in a free market economy. You don't have to consume. You don't have to go out. To fancy dinners or buy a, a bigger TV screen, and that's actually one reason why, when we're looking at surveys about materialism, how much would you be willing to sacrifice of your of friendship, of time, and of comf- uh, convenience to get more money, to get more stuff? Then you realize that the richest and the freest economies, they are the places that are the least materialist, because you know there is a um, at point at which uh, there is diminishing returns. And, and that's a great thing. We can focus on, on other things than stuff. But people, I mean, if you really want to see people who are desperately super materialist, you should go to communist societies with uh, very little access to goods and services because they would do anything. Just get, get that TV screen.
0: Joan Norberg is author of The Capitalist Manifesto, Why the Global Free Market Will Save the World. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please. And thank you for listening.